0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You now as we assemble again this afternoon with our bellies full of food that You have bountifully supplied. We now ask You to fill our souls with the food from heaven, with the manna that You feed us when we pray, as we seek You now uh, to be that for us, be the bread of life so that we in our souls uh, never hunger, never thirst, because we have all that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see you that way through Him. Help us to experience your love in that way, which we long to do more. Help us, Lord, to increasingly become like strangers and pilgrims, confessing that we are, because we are persuaded and we do embrace the promises of God, which are yes and amen. In Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. So help us just a little while, we ask again, this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, this afternoon we'll finish up for a short time in looking at the last four verses of this third stanza, or strophe if you will, uh, which we entitled, The Word of God Reveals Wonders. The Request... The plea was deal bountifully with thy servant so he could live and keep the word. And in so making the request, he needs to see wondrous things out of the law for which he asks God to open his eyes as he takes his eyes to scripture. He's a stranger in the earth, hide not my commandments from me. And as a stranger, he's out of sync with the people of the earth, particularly Not only his lifestyle, but his values. Why? Because his soul is breaking for the longing that it, his soul, has uh, unto the judgments of God at all times. Now verse 21. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, because I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, But your servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. So next we look at his reproach and contempt. Verse 22, the word remove means to roll away from me. The reproach and contempt. And the request in verse 21 is because the proud are rolling upon him that very reproach and contempt. Reproach and contempt is a mixture of disapproval with a feeling of disgust. So the proud disapprove of the psalmist psalmist, psalmist, and they have disdain, they have disgust, they have a kind of indignation against him. Sometimes we think suffering physically is worse than reproach. But when you think about it, it's just as bad, if not worse. Young people have taken their lives because of reproach they experienced in social media. There was no physical pain. There was no physical sickness. It was the emotional distress of the contempt they experienced that they ended their lives. And sometimes it could be a reproach that was for a reason. But for the psalmist, it's all slander. It's not true. What they're saying about him, what the princes are speaking against him, which suggests slander and even plotting, is emphatically not true because he's keeping the testimonies of God. So first let's look at the, the proud Thou hast rebuked, which is also saying, Lord, will you rebuke the proud? The proud are the cursed, and they do err from the commandments. What that tells us is the proud are within the covenant community called Israel. The Philistines don't wander in the commands of God. They never had them. So these proud people are within the covenant community called Israel. And there are many proud people within the covenant community called Christianity today in our culture. So these proud wander from the commandments. They are presumptuous. Now that can mean two things. They they are presumptuous, which means they, they think something, they act on something that they have no evidence or proof of. Well, the first thing they act on is they act against the psalmist. They are the ones that are heaping upon him reproach and contempt. They are presumptuous to do that. And they're doing it because he keeps the testimonies of God. But also their presumption is in thinking that because they identify themselves as being part of the covenant community called Israel that they in fact are. And that's their presumption. Because they are the proud. Definite article. The proud wander from the commandments. Now is the psalmist saying they're proud because they wonder or they're proud and a symptom of their pride is they wonder? And of course the latter is true. The definite article is not they're humble and they struggle with pride like you and me. Sometimes they're proud. No, it's the proud. Definite article. The proud are cursed. Before they ever wander, they're cursed. The symptom of their pride and their autonomy, doing and living life according to their own eyes, although they identify as, and they're in the covenant community called Israel, the symptom of that pride and that self-will is, they stray from the commandments of God. They're not humble. Now, they presume that commandment-keeping is of no consequence. There are Christians today, there are people that identify as Christians today who think it no consequence, no retribution, not to stay with the commandments of God. So what does God say in Exodus 20, verse 6, within the Ten Commandments? God is showing mercy unto thousands of those that love me and keep my commandments. See, the mercy of God so works to cause us to love Him, and then that love causes us to stay with the commandments of God. Ezekiel 36, the very covenant language of the Old Testament, speaks of this. God says, "I will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh." And the, the imagery there is clear. A heart of stone is not pliable. It doesn't, doesn't bend, it doesn't receive anything, but a heart of flesh is pliable. Okay. Then he says, I will put my spirit within you, which is synonymous in the new covenant. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds Will I write them. I will put in a new heart. And what will God do? I will cause them to walk in my statutes to keep them and do them. The word cause there means to work. And we find in Philippians two thirteen and 14, he works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure and he's never going to stop that work. So the proud here are the proud, they are the cursed and the symptom of being cursed is they wander. Now if I were to try to guess your thoughts right now, you might say, I might say, where does that leave me? Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Where does that leave you? If the cursed err and stray from the commandments, where does that leave the psalmist? Psalm 119, verse 176, the very last word of the psalmist in these 22 strophes: I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Now that's him speaking. He's not speaking about the proud now. He's speaking of himself. It's the same word. I have erred from the commandments of God. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. So get the picture here. Like a sheep, the psalmist is in the in the fold safely under the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. And then he decides one day, I'm going to leave the shepherd. I'm going to leave the flock. I'm going to leave the fold. I'm going to go out the gate. I'm going to take a right and then take a left. I'm going to find myself in the wild wilderness. He's lost. Sheep cannot, they do not find their way home. If they don't, they perish. I have read stories of dogs, cats that can find themselves back home, the way back home, being 100 miles from home. Weeks later, there they are. They show up at the doorstep. Birds can find their way. All kinds of animals. Sheep cannot find their way back. Once a sheep is lost, they perish. But then the psalmist says this in 176, Seek thy servant because I do not forget your commandments. That sounds kind of interesting. I thought that's why you're lost, because you erred from the commandments, but now you're telling us the reason you're asking God to seek you is because you don't forget them. And in fact, that's what he's saying. There's something within you, a principle called grace, that you cannot totally nor finally forget the implanted word. And so the Lord seeks His servant by means of the word of God. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. The principle of grace that's implanted in a new birth remains. So that John will say in First John chapter one, or chapter three, verse six, "Whosoever is born of God cannot sin, because his seed remaineth in him." And he the person cannot sin because he's born of god now when we looked at that a week or 2 ago the context tells us that cannot sin means cannot sin like the previous verse like the devil does from the beginning and he keeps right on sinning he keeps right on going because he's governed by the lust of his own flesh the lust of the devil john 8:44 What John is telling us, there's something within you that remains, the Holy Seed, the Holy Spirit, so that you cannot go on sinning and loving sin like the devil because you're born of God. The reason the proud are cursed when they err is because they stay astray and they don't come back. The symptom of their being cursed is they wander And they're lost because there's no one to seek them. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. They'll never be lost. Can you be lost? Yes, you can be lost. The psalmist just said he could be lost. But not so as to be lost totally and finally. Because there's a principle it's the Word of God that's been implanted. And so, something so bothered him when he was lost, he couldn't forget the Word of God. He couldn't forget when he was sinning. He couldn't forget the grace of God. He could not forget. And so the Lord sought His servant by means of the implanted Word that God brought to His mind, either externally by providence, before I was afflicted. But after the affliction, what happened? What happened? He was brought back to the Word. Or internally, the Holy Seed, the Holy Spirit, brings to mind in your conscience, you are sinning against God. And so the proud, when they wander, when they err, when they stray, it's final. Now look at the humble. In contrast, verse 22, Remove from me the reproach and contempt. So the proud... Who do err in wonder, the proud who are cursed, the proud who don't love the covenant-keeping God, although they're within Israel. The proud are heaping upon Him reproach and contempt, but the humble, what does He do? I have kept Thy testimonies. Now what does that mean? The word kept means fidelity. So the, the idea of keeping commands, even in Exodus 26, is not with perfection, always without sinning. It's, it's staying the course is how you need to read those passages. Uh, Whosoever is born of God did not commit sin. It, he stays the course. He repents of his sin. He doesn't sin without repentance because there's that principle within him. Or in Hebrews chapter 5, Where it says he became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. Obedience or keeping commands or being on the pathway of obedience is the fruit of eternal life. It's not the root. You don't obey so that Jesus becomes the author of your eternal life. He is the author. He brings you eternal life. And the fruit of that is because of this holy principle. We're walking in the pathway of obedience for which we can stray, as we just saw in 176. So, he is keeping the commandments. Now, there's a couple of ways, or we should say, the, uh, the, the expression of being humble here is two or threefold. First of all, he asked God to roll away his repro- reproach and contempt. That's an act of humility. He could roll it away himself in one of two ways. He could return the evil and return the reproach. You've probably had that experience sometime like I have, where we've had that moment of pride, and we decide we're going to return the evil that was given to us. He could do that. Secondly, he could roll away his reproach if he would only stop keeping commands. And that's the basis of his request. Because the proud are reproaching him, For that very reason. Beloved, there are people in our society within Christian circles that will be the source of your reproach specifically because you're keeping the commands of God. You're following the Word of God and therefore they're going to heap contempt and reproach upon you because your view of the Bible doesn't meet with their affections and their desires. It's going to happen. You're going to feel more like a stranger in this country and in exile because... Simply you are staying with the Word of God and you're staying with the testimonies of God. And so he doesn't roll away his own reproach. He is humble. He asks God to roll it away and he is asking on the basis because he is staying with the commands of God which is the reason for the reproach. We find a couple of places in the New Testament where reproach is often the threat of turning away from the commandments of God. In other words, if you want to get rid of the reproach, all you have to do is stop being a Christian. All he has to do is stop keeping the commands, and the proud will leave him alone, and in our society. All we have to do is leave the Bible, all we have to do is stop talking about the Bible, and people will leave you alone. But that would be to err from the commandments of God, or to go astray like a lost sheep. Consider two passages, one in Hebrews chapter 10, and we know that book is all about encouraging the suffering saints to stay on the pathway to glory, stay with the commandments of God, stay on this pathway of holiness, because on that pathway God is training and chastening you. They were being tempted to remove the reproach they were experiencing, and all they had to do was go back to Jerusalem Go back to the law service. Go back to the sacrifices. Go back to the temple for which they had left. Why? Because the new temple is here. The sacrifices for which they were pointing to Jesus Christ. He's arrived. And so he encourages them to go on to perfection. Hebrews 6.1 And that would mean they have to endure reproach. So he says in Hebrews chapter 10, Call to remembrance the former days after you were illuminated. God had opened their eyes. God had opened their eyes to behold wondrous things out of the law. And it wasn't about the law. It was about the fulfillment of the law in the gospel. Remember the day when your eyes were first illuminated. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Hebrews 1, Ephesians 1.18. That you may know what is the hope of His calling. That had happened to them. So the writer says, I want you to think back to that day when you were first illuminated. What happened? You endured a great fight of affliction. It was a struggle. It was a struggle with persecution and affliction. And then it divides them into two groups, partly why you were made a gazing stock by reproaches and afflictions. It wasn't just afflictions, maybe of, uh, of a physical kind, it was reproaches. Gazing stock is where we get our word theater. It's where you go to a show and somebody gets on stage and they perform. So they were put on the public stage of reproach. It would be like being on stage and nobody likes your performance. When I, I guess they used to do this and they throw rotten tomatoes at you. I, I've seen that somewhere. may not even be true. At least they boo you. So here you are standing on stage by yourself and you're being hurled at you objects or worse, words of reproach and condemnation all because you were illuminated and you saw wondrous things out of the gospel. All because you're obedient. All because you're following in the pathway of God and keeping His commandments. All you have to do to get rid of the reproach is just stop obeying. And they were about to that point because the reproach was so difficult. Why? Because it was coming from within the covenant community called Israel and family, and cousins, and aunts, and uncles. Now, it's one thing to be reproached by people you don't know. But when it's inside the people, group that you love, now it's much more difficult, isn't it? It was the Jewish people. People they grew up with. People they were friends with. And now they're being reproached. So what is he telling them? It was because of illumination. You didn't roll off the reproach. By taking things in your own hand, you didn't roll off the reproach, what they were considering doing. By going back to where you came from, you need to endure the reproach because of the illumination of God's Word. And then he says, They had taken joyfully the spoiling of their goods, because they knew in heaven they had an enduring and an abiding substance. In other words, they had hope in the future. And that hope in God, and hope that comes by the Word of God produced an endurance because they were looking ahead to what was to come. The second place is 1 Peter chapter 4. And what we're talking about is not rolling away our own reproach, but to be a stranger in the earth means at times we're going to experience reproach and contempt. And the reason we will is because you're walking in the pathway God has called you to walk. The very thing God called you to do is going to bring the reproach that we so dislike. So Peter is preparing the uh, church and uh, the suffering saints in 1 Peter. And he says, Beloved, do not think it strange or surprising concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Rather than be surprised, do this, but rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's suffering so that when His glory shall be revealed, future, you shall be glad with exceeding joy, if you be reproached for the name of Christ. See, when you look at 1 Peter, a lot of what's going on is just reproach. Evil speaking is used two or three times. Sometimes that's more difficult than being harmed physically. The emotional distress of being falsely accused and being reproached and condemned can be difficult. So notice what Peter says. He says, Rejoice so that... So Rejoicing is a prerequisite of being glad when Jesus comes. If you give up the rejoicing and throw it away... What just happened? You rolled away the reproach. See, the rejoicing is being a partaker of Christ's suffering. So when you're in the suffering of reproach, that's included there, because you're living in a way that Christ called you to and you're being reproached for righteousness' sake, when you rejoice in that, what's happening, that is a prerequisite for being glad when he returns because the rejoicing is going to sustain you on the pathway to glory. Now, reproach is nothing to rejoice in. It's no fun. So if the joy of not being reproached is a greater joy than the joy of looking for Christ's return, what am I going to do? I'm going to get rid of the reproach and return to a kind of joy where there's no suffering. That's what Peter is trying to prevent by what he's saying. Right? Rejoicing in the Bible is a rejoicing that comes from 1 Peter 1.13. Gird up the loins of your mind, think scripturally, and hope to the end at the revelation that is to be brought to you when His glory is revealed. So if you're hoping for the glory that shall be revealed so that you be glad with an exceeding joy, then that hope is producing a joy that's sustaining you in the reproach. If you give up the hope, you give up the spiritual joy, and what happens? You leave the reproach, which means you leave the pathway of obedience. Now that's what Peter's saying. So then he says, if you're reproached, for the name of Christ, happy are you, because the Spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. On your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busy body in other men's matters. But if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God on this behalf. What behalf? How is God glorified by being a Christian on this behalf. When we're enduring the reproach out of rejoicing. That hope is producing something in our lives called keeping the commandments of God. What is Peter trying to prevent? Them rolling away the reproach off of themselves by doing what? Departing from the pathway of obedience. Why? Because this is really strange stuff. No, it's not. Because the next verse says, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now if it begins with us, what shall the end be of those that obey not the gospel? Is obedience to the gospel important? What happens to those that don't obey it? Where shall they end up? That's a rhetorical answer, isn't it? We know that. And if the godly are righteous or scarcely saved, what shall the end be of those that are ungodly? Scarcely. In our English, it can mean something that's real scant or not very much of. But there, one of the nuances is with difficulty. If the righteous are being saved through the difficulty of reproach, because they are, because the judgment of God against the righteous is not a judgment that's like a consuming fire, that's on the proud. His judgment is like a refiner's fire. He's using the fire, the fiery trial, Peter says, as a means of refinement. So don't roll away the very reproach that God is using as a means of your refinement. Because the only way to roll away the reproach is again, you give it back to them, which is not God's will, or you leave the pathway of the humble and you join the proud and your reproach is over. But where will the end be of those who do not obey commands? Not because commands are pre- prerequisite for salvation, but they are the fruit. And so, the message the psalmist is giving us is that in humility, when we are more like strangers in the earth, it's going to be reproach. And in humility, we ask God to rebuke the proud, and He will in His timing. And we ask God to roll away the reproach and contempt, because we're going to stay with God in the reproach, And stay with God and his testimonies. And what is the means of staying with God? Verse 23. Princes also did sit and speak against me. So again, these rulers could be something as a lower level, kind of a tribesman ruler, or even a family kind of head. Or it could be something larger, like a like a prince, kind of king ruler. You know, reproach is often a precursor to something worse in persecution. It's always the precursor. That's where they start to try to get you in line. They're going to reproach you. They're going to slander you. But then in 1 Peter, it got to something worse, didn't it? And so now the princes are getting involved, the rulers. And what do they do? They're plotting. They're planning against the righteous. And you know, I think there's probably a lot of that in our culture today, don't you think? One day it's going to separate from just kind of conservative people to the genuine Christians. That'll be the end of reproach. That's where it's going. There's a a large swath of people kind of in this. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, when the smoke lifts, it'll be the people standing on the Word of God that are the ones who get the persecution. So how will we stand and keep the testimonies of God? Well, the means that the psalmist mentions here is in the contrast. Yes, they sit against and speak against me, but your servant... That's the servant who needs the bounty of verse 17 in the grace of God. To keep the commandments, your servant did meditate in your statutes. See, rather than roll over the reproach off yourself through leaving the commandments or giving reproach back, the psalmist says, but what I did was meditate. Now there's that word again. We're going to see that word a lot of times in Psalm 119. Ponder, think, consider, roll it over again and again. Now the word meditate can can have two different directions. It can mean to ponder and think in a good way, but it can also mean to complain. It's used twice in the Bible, in the Old Testament, to mean complain. See, complain is to express your dissatisfaction with management, basically, right? See, your meditation, your thinking can lead you to complain because all I'm getting is reproach and contempt and these princes are against me and, you know, the economy is in shams and things are going so bad, I'm so angry, I'm so discontent, I'm dissatisfied, which in, in fact becomes a dissatisfaction with God because He's decisive in the reason things are the way are, they are. Decisive means He has the ultimate decision to whether those things lift Or whether they stay because He's sovereign. Decisive doesn't mean He is the cause of the evil and He's accountable for it. It means it wouldn't exist if He didn't will it to exist. Which means, to will it means, I'm going to let it exist for my holy purpose. So we have to be careful that our meditation doesn't lead to a kind of complaint against God that is dissatisfied and discontent rather than a meditation that's going to serve us in staying with the testimonies of God, even when we have to bear the difficulty of reproach. And it is difficult. If you've ever been there, that's not easy. It's not fun. It's terrible. All right, so let's think about how that may work. for me. What is it that we need to think about? Well, obviously we need to think about the Word of God, but what, what, what specific area should we think? Well, Psalm 119, it's verse 75, I think, says this. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, they're righteous, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. All right, we just saw in 1 Peter, affliction includes reproach. So the proud are reproaching me for two reasons. Because they're proud, that's a secondary reason. The first reason is because God is afflicting you with the reproach any reproach you ever experience, any affliction you ever go through, God is the ultimate source of it. The secondary sources are just as real and true and are accountable if there's sin involved. That does not negate it. But the psalmist says, God's decisions are righteous. And what did God decide? He decided that you would be reproached. He decided that you would be afflicted. So whatever affliction you're experiencing right now, ever be so light or heavy. And the affliction in this context is an affliction for righteousness' sake. Sometimes you get afflicted because of sin's sake. And God suffered that, but that's repentance. It's needed there. The psalmist's affliction is not owing to sin. He is keeping the commandments of God and he's being reproached and slandered in a way that is false accusation. And what does he say in the se- uh, 75th verse? God's decision was righteous and it was faithfulness in afflicting the psalmist. What makes it right? What makes everything God does right? Well, you know, he looks in the Bible and says, Oh, I can do that. It's right. No. No, that's not why. That's what you do, and that's what I do. We look and say, oh, that wasn't right. (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have felt that. I shouldn't have been glad about that. God's decisions are right because they're always aiming for God. Always aiming for God. If they don't aim for God, He's not right. And I don't have time to take you to those verses, but we already have. You probably already know them. When God is aiming for His glory in everything He does, everything He doesn't do, everything He decides to do, everything He decides not to do, He is always right. Which tells us what? His faithfulness in afflicting you is His faithfulness to His name. If God stops being faithful to His name, He stops being faithful to you. As long as He's faithful to His name, because the covenant-keeping God has saved you for His name's sake. His aim for you is His name. His goal for you is to know that name. His aim in salvation is for you to experience that name. Because the name is not just G-O-D, it's His person, His character. And so the affliction is aiming at your holiness, Hebrews chapter 12. And when God is aiming for your holiness, He's aiming for your good. And so He's being faithful when He afflicts you Because he's being faithful to his covenant purpose to make you like Jesus. And if you're like Jesus, then you're magnifying the name of God. The name of God. And so what we need to meditate on in our afflictions, and there's all kinds of things and all kinds of thoughts that we'll be tempted to meditate on. The kind that will make us complain. The kind that will make us be angry and indignant. when we shouldn't be angry and indignant, at least in some ways. But this servant, because he's looking to God's Word and looking to wondrous things out of the law, he meditates on that Word in such a way that he is looking to God to remove it. Anytime we can remove a trial in a lawful way, then it's lawful to remove yourself from it. But how is he going to get out of this one? He couldn't. Unless he left the testimonies of God. And then there's Jeremiah. Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 3, when he's struggling with his thoughts and meditation, how God has bent his bow for the mark, and Jeremiah was the mark. He's, he's crushed my, my teeth like with gravel stones. And he goes through all this imagery of language of how he's experiencing such difficult, dark, painful days at the destruction Of the nation of Israel. Carried away captive to Babylon. He says. Remembering my affliction and my misery. The worm and the gall. What's it? My soul is humbled within me. It means depressed. Despairing. Downcast. Why is he so downcast? Because all he can remember. All he can think about. All he can ponder. Is his affliction and his misery. Now, to some degree, you can't just block affliction and misery out of your mind. I'm not going to think about that. I mean, if if you're consumed with an affliction, like Job was, if you're consumed with misery, to some degree, you're going to be thinking through those details. But it changed for him when he said, This I call to mind, which I think is the same word as remembering. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful to exalt His mercy. And that mercy that He exalts is a covenant-keeping mercy that's going to be coming to you new every morning. Now what that means is this. Sometimes the mercy of God comes in a nice package with a nice bow, nicely wrapped with a nice gift inside. But sometimes the mercy of God comes in a package called affliction and misery and reproach and contempt and slander. The point of Jeremiah, it is always, always mercy. Mercy severe at times. Mercy, I guess we could say light, or the, the kind of mercy we, we love to see, but always mercy. It's new, it's fresh, but it's the same mercy That's new every morning. His new morning mercies may have a different package, but He's always being merciful. If we can meditate and think on these things, the God who is with you and for you, the God who has a purpose in your approach, the God who will never leave you nor forsake you, the God who will deal bountifully with you in and through the trial, is the God we need to meditate on. And when we meditate and think and ponder biblically, The pain is still there. The reproach hasn't left. But it produces a joyfulness deep in the soul. That is resting in the covenant keeping promises of God. That we are persuaded of. And we have embraced them. And we confess gladly. We're strangers and pilgrims. And then the result in verse 24. Your testimonies also also are my delight and my counselors. That is when I meditate. I meditate. In thy statutes, then those statutes, those testimonies become to me delight in my counsel. Now, they need to be both here. Sometimes there are Christians that want to take one or the other. Sometimes Christians say, I delight in the gospel, but don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what to do. I don't need a counselor. I just just delight in the prospect of the gospel. Asaph said in Psalm 73... Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me up to glory. Who do I have in heaven but thee? There's none on earth I desire beside thee. If you don't want the counsel of God, you don't want to be in heaven. He will guide me with His counsel afterward receive me to glory. What's glory about? Who do I have in heaven but thee? That's what heaven's about. If we delight in the gospel, perhaps we simply want a paradise, but a paradise with no God in it. Don't Tell me what to do, just tell me about the insurance plan, and I I just don't want to go to the bad place. But don't tell me how to live. No, for the psalmist who delights or meditates in statutes, he says the testimonies, they delight me and they counsel me. It's both. Somebody says, I just want counsel. I don't delight in that stuff. Why would you want counsel? Well, because some preacher told me. If I'll do what God says, He'll make me prosperous. He's going to bless me. You know, a blessing on your head, mazel tov, mazel tov, I mean, that's what I'm after. So give me the counsel. Tell me how to improve my life. Tell me how to change. Tell me how to do better. That's not my delight. What I'm delighting in is the prosperity that comes. That's just as far off the mark. The psalmist, when he meditates in the statutes about God, what happens? The testimonies give him delight and they give him counsel. Because his delight is in the God who counsels him. And the counsel is all about God. So let us be like the psalmist. And let us meditate in our times of reproach, in our times of affliction. In slander, which surely will come as aliens and exiles in this earth, we will experience it to some degree, growing increasingly in our culture. Let us not try to remove the reproach unlawfully, but stay with God in it, meditate on His statutes, and may His statutes and testimonies become for us our delight and our counselors. Let's pray. Father, we just want to again pray as the psalmist prayed and seek You in this way. Ask You, Lord, that our meditations, our pondering in Your Word would produce wondrous things that we could see because You're opening our eyes to see it. And that we would bring our minds, our hearts, our thoughts to the Word where we can find such wonderful, wondrous, amazing things. May we regain the wonder of Your Word, the treasure of Your Word. May we find the fear of the Lord in it. May we discover once again how great wondrous things You have done and who You are. And may our meditations upon Christ be sweet and filled with the sweetness of Your Word by the Spirit. And Lord, in our times of reproach and contempt, in times when people may slander us, may the meditation be such that we are enabled by grace to stay on the pathway of keeping your commands, imperfect as we are, laced always with sin and imperfection, yet walking with you in the pathway. May this produce your testimonies in us. Delight, like the, the tree planted by the rivers of water. May that delight produce much fruit for the glory of your name. And may your testimonies be our counselors as we just pray with the psalmist may we be guided may your decisions your will your ways may you give us the counsel we desperately need in the land of our exile so that we may bring honor to you make all these things so for your name and your glory in the name of christ we ask it amen